Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. During the pandemic, homeschooling rates spiked, reaching unprecedented levels. And though they've fallen some since then, homeschooling numbers remain far higher than anything we saw before the pandemic. What's driving this change? What can we expect from homeschooling in the coming years? And what do we know about homeschooling more broadly? To discuss these questions and more, I invited Angela Watson onto the podcast. Angela Watson is a senior research fellow at the Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy and an assistant research professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Education. She's also the creator of the Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy's Homeschool Hub and the director of the Homeschool Research Lab. Angela Watson, welcome to the report card. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here today. So, Angela, during the pandemic, homeschooling numbers spiked, and I mean really spiked, and we'll talk about those in a minute, but I want to set the stage first. So pre-pandemic, what were homeschooling numbers and trends looking like? I mean, how many children were homeschooled, and were those numbers going up? So this is the the way that I really like to frame all of these discussions about homeschooling is kind of a comparison um, to the other sectors as well. So pre-pandemic, homeschool participation was around 2 to 3 percent, according to federal estimates. Um, now, homeschooling is around, I think, 5 to 6 percent. So the federal estimates are hovering at about 4.5. And we are calling those registered, state-registered homeschoolers. But we think there are quite a few other people who are doing things from home that aren't accounted for in those numbers. So they're high. The important thing, though, to also consider is what does that mean? So if you say, you know, homeschoolers are 5% of the national K-12 population, well, compared to what? And even policy insiders don't really know what that what that what necessarily is. But for context, right now, about 9% of all K-12 um, students in the United States attend private schools. 7% attend charter schools. And if we think five or maybe even 6% are attending or participating in homeschooling, we're talking about huge numbers of students in comparison to some of these other sectors that you know we hear about all the time. So if I'm hearing you right, homeschool students today, or at least in recent of recent vintage, are rivaling the, the percentage of private school students. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Now, a lot of this happened during the pandemic. So this may seem obvious to people, but I actually want to ask the question, the pandemic hit and then what happened with homeschooling? So I think, you know, a variety of things happened. I mean, all of us had our kids at home, right? When the pandemic happened, we all were homeschooling in some way or other. Um, Pure homeschoolers would not call what most of us were doing homeschooling. But nevertheless, we had kids at home. Um, you know, virtual schooling, my kids attended public, attend public schools, um, virtual schooling, you know, during that time was not super great. And I think we can all kind of agree on that. So, you know, a lot of parents were looking for other options, especially as the pandemic, you know, went into the next year. And we over the summer, we're all trying to figure out what we're going to do with our kids and what we're going to do about education. And so I think a lot of parents turned to homeschooling as an option. Also, it's important to know that, you know, we have homeschooling is a lot different than it was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago because of the Internet, because of so many online curriculum and supports and 
all of these things that, you know, parents who may not have considered homeschooling before can consider homeschooling now because things are a little different than they were even pre-pandemic. So there were a lot of headwinds for homeschooling in that pandemic. First of all, schools were shut down. That's a pretty big headwind, right? We're not going to see that one again. Uh, but also parents were more likely to be home. Um, what other headwinds that were conducive to it do we need to keep on the board to understand what happened in late 2020 and that first school year? I mean, one is parents were home. The other is schools were closed. Uh, were there any other drivers that you think uh, goose the homeschooling numbers? So something that I'm kind of curious about and that we're going to be working on in our homeschool research lab is that just anecdotally, we haven't done a really deep dive on this yet, but our, the homeschool hub that I'm sure we'll talk about later has disaggregated data. We can see some places, some states have data on kids by age and grade. And so what we see in those data and what other people have reported when they look at homeschooling is a lot of the increase in homeschool participation during the pandemic and currently is with younger students. So it could be that parents of younger students didn't want their kids to have to wear masks all day or whatever, whatever the requirements were at, you know, in, in brick and mortar schools during that time. But I think it could also be that younger students have younger parents and that potentially these younger generation of parents, um, that homeschooling wasn't stigmatized for them in a way that it might have been for my generation. And maybe they were w more willing to try homeschooling or opt into homeschooling. Maybe they were more tech savvy and willing to accept online options or alternate options. But we definitely see that these the most of the growth in homeschooling is for younger kids. So there's something going on there that may have been kind of a headwind. And we also saw that some demographic groups, for instance, black families, there was a large increase for black families. Um, that doesn't necessarily, I mean, maybe it does. It doesn't necessarily seem to map onto the pandemic headwinds quite so much. I mean, how do you explain that? And I understand these data aren't perfect, right? So if I ask you these questions, I understand you can't say, well, we have full data on all homeschoolers and who they are. But with this increase in black students, what does your gut tell you and what questions do you have? Yeah. So it's definitely something that we want to look into more. But my my gut is that, you know, uh, black homeschool families saw had the same concerns. They saw that kids weren't learning as well in a virtual setting. They had their kids home. They were also probably home with their kids. So all of those things were happening that for them that was happening for everyone else. Um, but also during that time, you know, we had um, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and all of that happening during that during the pandemic time as well. And so I think that definitely played into black homeschoolers, you know, leaving the public schools and really growing into homeschooling, giving giving it a try. And then you have that going on. Also, the cultural relevancy of the curriculum, what their kids were learning. You know, a lot of times black families um, are concerned about low expectations for their students in the schools. And so they could see this in a different way during the pandemic when their kid was in their kitchen, you know, at their kitchen table, then they maybe could have, I think we all did. I think we all realized what was going on with our kids' education on a new level when we were seeing it firsthand play out in our, you know, living rooms. Um, and so I think that that really added to um, black and brown homeschooling families increasing. 
So it's not been that long since the pandemic. So I understand that this question is a little tricky, but I'm interested in what has happened with these trends since the pandemic. I think I'm one of many folks. But look, we talked about there's a lot of headwinds, including the closure of schools, which was a huge one. Since then, we've had schools reopened. Um, Not all of those headwinds that would have increased homeschooling have gone away. But what have you seen when you're sifting through the data about what has happened since peak COVID homeschooling? What are the trends looking like in broad strokes? Yeah. So interestingly, when we look at homeschool, so longitudinal participation data, you know, there were spikes in most every state. There were a couple states where there weren't spikes during the pandemic, but overall big increase during the pandemic. And everyone thought it would go back to normal after things kind of abated, got back to normal in our lives. That happened to some extent, but there are eight states where homeschooling continues to grow even post pandemic. Um, and so that is, I think that is interesting. Homeschooling did decline in some states more than others, but it was definitely not back to the original levels. You know, we have people who tried homeschooling out and decided to stay and more people coming to homeschooling. Um, I think a lot of that is, you know, a new brand of homeschoolers. Um, new networks were built during that time and they're continuing to rely on some of that networking and ground grassroots systems that were laid down during the pandemic that are still kind of feeding the interest and participation in homeschooling. So, Angela, I've been asking you all these questions as if you're omniscient about homeschooling, but you've been instrumental in building the homeschool hub, which has gathered data across the states. Tell us a little bit about the data you've collected. Yeah. So the Hopkins Homeschool Hub is our affectionate nickname. It's the Johns Hopkins in, um, Institute for Education Policy Homeschool Hub. Basically, in, in broad strokes, it's a catalog of all regulation and participation information for all 50 states and D.C. Um, I've been collecting the data on homeschooling for almost the last decade. And so we've kind of leveraged that store of data along with collecting new data from all of the states that have it um, and compiling that all into one place so that folks who are interested in homeschooling, you know, academic researchers, policymakers can come to the hub and see everything in one place. And it saves people from having to go state to state um, you know, Department of Ed to Department of Ed website. It's very laborious to try to compile all of these data. And so I think that alone is going to be a huge addition to what we know about homeschooling, just being able to access that information. And all of the data are also downloadable. So folks can go on there and just click the button and download all of these wonderful longitudinal state participation data informations. So, I've done a lot of this collection of other kinds of data and looked a little bit at the homeschooling numbers as well. And I know what it's like. It's a pain to get these state data sets. Um, But homeschooling is a little different than trying to get private school numbers and certainly public school numbers because there's an infrastructure, certainly for public schools, right? I mean, we know how many kids go to public schools. They have to account for them. They get paid by the state. There's things like that. But when it comes to homeschooling, the data collection whatever you want to call it, the regime really differs from one state to the other. Uh, Tell us about how much variation there is in how much data you get in, you know, California versus Delaware, for instance. 
Right. So California and Delaware are great examples. Delaware actually has pretty robust data. They disaggregate. It's the only state that we have where we can see homeschool participation by race. California, on the other hand, um, asks homeschool families to report, although in California, homeschooling is technically or legally classified as private schooling. So that's a difference, you know. So states don't even use the same terms for schooling at home from your kitchen table. It's called all different kinds of names. Some states even have multiple names for the thing that you're doing at your kitchen table and you can classify in different ways. Um, But California actually doesn't report the data publicly. And so you have to go through a lot of different gymnastics to try to get those data. Um, So yeah, there are a lot of differences. And we're calling it um, state-registered homeschoolers because we know that there, depending on the state, there's a lot of variation in who is actually reporting to the state, whether they're, you know, everyone who's homeschooling. And then, you know, in some states, Georgia's a good example. You can be homeschooling um, and then your child enters ninth or 10th grade, in order to get the HOPE scholarship in that state, you have to graduate high school from an accredited high school. So families will switch then to a private school umbrella for their homeschooling. So they're still doing the exact same thing, but now they're legally classified as private schoolers. And so, you know, how those kids are counted in the state data is really unclear. And some of the states don't even collect homeschooling numbers. Is that correct? Right. About a dozen states don't collect and they're big ones. So we don't know anything about homeschooling in Texas, Oklahoma, uh, very little in Missouri. And then all of the I states, Indiana, Iowa, you know, the we Illinois, we know very little. So some some really big areas of the country that we're kind of without knowledge. So you've put a lot of effort in the homeschool hub to gather this data together. You have data in some places, you're missing data in other places places just because it isn't gathered by the state. Um, forgive me if this sounds rude, but brass tacks, how much do you trust the data that you have at your fingertips? Yeah. So, you know, not a lot. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're doing the best with, 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 with what we have. It is some information. It is certainly flawed, you know, but probably as most data are, we trust the private school numbers, but those are voluntary reports. And so we don't really know exactly how accurate those are either. Um, So, you know, it's not, it's not perfect, but in homeschool research, any information is better than, than zero. And especially now, I think with this increase in percentage of students participating in homeschooling, we're just trying to gather as much as we can. Okay, so let's go and talk a little bit about homeschooling and kind of what we know more generally, less about counts and more about its nature. And I kind of want to start maybe pre-pandemic, but you tell me, I mean, do we know what this looks like? What kind of parents choose to homeschool their kids? Are they more affluent? I can imagine poorer families might have a harder time doing this, or I imagine single parent families would definitely have a harder time. Do they tend to be more conservative or liberal, more religious, more educated? What do we know? Right. So I think the common stereotype, and I really refer to it as a trope of homeschoolers, is that they are, you know, upper middle class, white, 
conservative, you know, religious or maybe even extremist, right? You have like this rural, like you have like this whole list of characterizations that people use and think of when they think of homeschoolers. What we know is that if that was ever true, and I have doubts that it was ever true, it is less certainly less true today. Um, I was working with my research assistant yesterday. We're looking at the Pulse survey data that comes from the National Census, U.S. Census, and uh, we're specifically looking at you know these characterizations, these stereotypes of homeschoolers, and how true they are or not. And so, what people will say is that oh, you know, most homeschoolers are white. Well, yeah, but. Also, most people in the United States are classified as white. And so what are we talking about? Are we talking about 63% or 98%, right? So we're going to do some to look at that. But uh, what we see, what I saw yesterday in looking at these Pulse numbers is that um, homeschoolers are actually the percentage of homeschoolers that are um, 25,000 or below income for their household, which is which is very low, is higher than than the percentage of public school and certainly private school parents at that threshold. So the characterization that homeschoolers are wealthier is not necessarily true. And at the higher end of the spectrum is certainly not true. Above about 150, 100,000, it's certainly not true that there, there were more public school parents uh, higher percentage of public school students at that higher threshold of income than were uh, homeschoolers. And then if you look to the history of homeschooling sort of way back, I think a lot of people will think about it in terms of that trope, religious conservatives, overwhelmingly Bible Belt thing. But correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a whole sort of leftist kind of counterculture, kind of granola strain that was early on and hasn't gone away. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, that is what the the historical, you know, context tells us. I think we have very little in actual data on that. And so, again, where this came from, um, you know, there was a researcher named Van Galen who came up with the ideologues and the pedagogues. And these were the two these were the two extreme versions um, that you described, you know, that uh, objected to the education establishment, the education system that forced kids into to desks and rote memorization, and then other people that objected, you know, on the grounds of some other kind of ideology um, related to religion or conservatism or whatever. Um, so, you know, I don't know exactly how true that ever was. We do have some data from Cardis that surveys has it's a nationally representative survey of family or of adults who were homeschooled. And so they're the homeschoolers are a subsample of that. But in those data, it looks to me like they were not terribly conservative. They were not terribly religious um, compared to the, re the rest of the population at that time. And this gives us information on what homeschoolers looked like 30 years ago, 20 years ago, because they're adults now reporting back. So it doesn't really even tell us what's happening now, but it does give us a little bit of historical perspective that may kind of disprove some of these things that we think about, you know, original historical homeschoolers. So again, in the pre-pandemic context, which I'm going to flip over to post-pandemic in just a second, but what do we know about why parents choose to homeschool? And my primary question here is, do you think that most homeschoolers are choosing or chose to homeschool because they thought, well, this is the ideal way to instruct my child? Or was it sort of a reaction saying, well, I really don't like any of the other options. So right. this is what 
I'm doing. So is it their pursuit of the ideal or their pursuit of the alternative? Right. So I think it depends on who you are and what that looks like. I've been talking, you know, I'm very interested in both black and brown homeschool communities and have been talking to some leaders in those communities. What some of the leaders in the black homeschool community have told me is that it's very different for, for their community, whereas maybe white families are kind of pulled through our many, many choices to homeschooling, black families may, you know, according to these leaders in the, in the black homeschool community, the black families feel pushed out. And so for them, it's the last choice, not the, you know, not their first choice. Um, and so I think there's kind of a, a difference push and pull dynamic going on here for some of these, some of these families. And it depends a lot on who you are and what other kind of options you have. Um. And when we talk about private schools, especially private school choice options, there's a lot of folks who say, well, we don't want this creaming effect where all the good kids get taken to public schools, not good as in objectively good, but otherwise advantaged kids. And then we have the public schools to take care of kids who can't take advantage of those choices. Do you hear similar arguments? Because I would imagine it's kind of parallel, right? I mean, if if parents are saying, well, I'm very engaged and I'm concerned, so I'm going to take my kid out because I'm dissatisfied. Well, that also leaves to some degree the kids in public schools or private schools with a, on average, less engaged parent. Do you hear those kinds of concerns with homeschooling? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, I think, yeah, certainly I think that opponents of homeschooling, that is one of the arguments that they make. I was providing some feedback on a UNESCO document looking at their UNESCO's recommendation for homeschooling. And that was one of the arguments they made was that it's this creaming effect and, um, you know, the, and that you're going to defund, you know, the public schools. And my response was, that's how can you allow private schools then? Like, you know, I understand that argument. And if that's true, we also need to be concerned about private schools because certainly they are taking the most engaged and the wealthiest parents out of the out of the system. And so maybe we shouldn't allow that if we are not going to allow these other options. The main thing that I'm hearing right now with the funding um, is around, you know, the increase in ESAs or voucher programs that are that are coming on and how folks are trying to figure out how they're going to include or exclude homeschoolers from those new plans. And over the pandemic, did ESAs seem to play into where we saw increases? For instance, if there was an ESA available in a state, did we see spikes in those states that were larger than places that didn't have an ESA or, or maybe had an ESA, but it wasn't really supposed to be used for homeschooling? Yeah. So I don't think we know that yet. What we do, what we are looking at is changes in regulation. So one of the big fears of allowing homeschoolers into these um, private public dollars for private education systems is that that will increase the regulation of homeschooling. And the homeschool advocates do not want any part of increased regulation for homeschoolers. So it has been a real concern for that community. What we're seeing in looking at regulation is that regulation for homeschooling over time has actually decreased. And so, you know, I don't want to make it sound like homeschooling is less regulated. I do want to make it sound like I think just looking at the regulations, it is a modernization. So a lot of these states had 
you know, 14 regulations about homeschooling that people had to do all these things. And they have cut that way back to only a couple of things. So it's more of a modernization really than a decrease, but ultimately it's, it's decreasing regulations. Sure. Certainly not increased regulation since the public funding has started coming in. One example though, that we can look at, I think a lot of these ESAs are too new for us to know, but we can look at Florida And so in Florida, they have a lower percentage of homeschoolers than some of the other states. And they have robust, you know, private school choice um, that has been in place for years and years and years in Florida. So it, it is an interesting example to kind of think about if parents have more choices, maybe they choose homeschooling less. Um, I live in Arkansas. We just passed a universal ESA here. It's very rural, low income, you know, state. We have some of the highest homeschool percentages in this state. So I'm going to be very interested to see what happens. Um, Homeschoolers are not yet eligible for the ESA in our state. That won't happen. It rolls out next year. So it'll be interesting to see. When parents have more options, what do they choose? Are they maybe they take maybe we have more homeschooling? Uh, maybe homeschooling goes down as parents have more options in in our state. So we'll see what happens. So you know, we say homeschooling like it's I don't know some uniform thing. I think many people, when you say that, probably have a picture of a of a mom with a kid across the kitchen table. You even said right. the kitchen table. Right. Uh, right. So uh, Angela, you're you're playing into this, but. <laughs> What does, like, I mean, how should we conceive of this? Because it is kind of an umbrella term. It covers kids from, you know, first grade to 12th grade and so forth. So how do you put brackets around what homeschooling is? Right. I think, you know, even maybe pre-pandemic, but certainly five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, if I said homeschooling, everyone knew what that meant. Now it is just so... um, It is so different depending on where you are. In general, the way that, you know, I and I think the homeschool establishment identifies or defines homeschooling is parent directed and primarily at home. Right. So those are those are kind of the things. But micro schooling, which is, you know, may or may not be parent directed, is generally not in the home, is legally classified. Those students are legally classified as homeschoolers in many states. Um, hybrid homeschools are kids that oftentimes it's parent directed, but they attend a brick and mortar school building for a few days during two or three days during the week, two or three days at home. Parents and actual teachers, you know, share the duties of deciding what's being learned and what curriculum is chosen. So it gets really, really interesting when we're trying to define and, and parents keep coming up with new ideas. They're constantly coming up with innovations and calling themselves new things. So I think defining and, and even counting homeschoolers is going to become progressively more difficult. Um, well, that that makes your job all the easier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about the curricula that are popular. I mean, you just said there's lots of different versions of this. It's hard to actually define it because the versions vary around the edges. But if someone like me were to ask you, what do the bulk of homeschoolers use or what are the most popular curricula? What do you tell them? So I don't know as much about actual curriculum, although it is something that we're wanting to start looking into as a way to kind of support these parents to support this burgeoning movement, you know, with resources and access to materials, recommendations. 
um, something kind of like an ed reports for, for these homeschool curriculum. But people use all different kinds of things. There's a whole cottage industry of curriculum that are coming on, different kinds of supports. AI, generative AI is getting involved in developing things for homeschool students. Um, so there's there's a lot going on out there and interest in and even in targeting certain kinds of students, you know, whether that be black students or special needs students, gifted students. There's lots of uh, lots of interest out there in developing some of these things for homeschool communities. I mean, it's obviously a large market, especially now, right? I mean, you're talking about somewhere around one in 20 kids. So there's a lot of service to be rendered, however that might be done. But it also seems like a decentralized market, about as decentralized as you can get. So it'd probably be hard to break into. Uh, But that raises the question of costs, I mean, you know, obviously private school costs money. Public school it doesn't really cost money, uh, although there are some costs associated with getting your kid there at full participation, whatever. It's much less. Um, what's the typical cost burden uh, for homeschoolers? What do they have to bring to make this work? So I think it depends. And I think there are financial costs, there are other opportunity costs involved in that as well. And so those are all considerations. Again, like the old stereotype was that you had to be a two parent family and one of the parents had to stay home to homeschool the children. Right. And that was usually the mom. But now, I mean, I work from home. Many of us work remotely. Things are more flexible than they were. So I think that the the opportunity cost has changed a little bit um, there as far as whether or not you have to forego a second income. Um, I think, too, the the financial costs depend on what you want to do. You know, it is possible to go to your local library and use materials there for free. And so you don't necessarily need to purchase a $5,000 curriculum or a $300 curriculum. Um, a lot of these curriculum companies are also offering smaller packages for homeschool families. So um, I've been in talks with Charlotte Mason, which is kind of a type of education program, a curriculum similar to Montessori or Waldorf, um, about looking at some new things that they're doing aimed specifically at homeschoolers, microschoolers, or like smaller education units. And they're going to offer theirs for $300, right? So it's not a huge expense necessarily. Um, You know, I think that things are becoming more affordable for families who want to homeschool. And you mentioned what I think is the biggest cost here. It's the opportunity cost. I mean, this is a huge responsibility for a parent to take on. You know, from my perspective, there's a, a pretty good reason that we collectively do school because we can sort of pool resources and do all these things. And if you homeschool, you either need to find alternative resources. And it should be said that in many places, you can get some participation in district school events and teams and all of these other things. So you're not totally on your own. But when it comes to those burdens, uh, how do you characterize the burden of homeschooling on parents? I mean, how much work, how much effort is it? Well, again, I think it it depends. I mean, I think that if you purchased an out-of-the-box curriculum that had everything already planned for you and your students sat down for four hours a day and worked through their assigned, you know, units – it might not be that much of a burden on the parents. If the parent wants to custom design everything 
to meet the needs of their child, it's going to require a little bit more time. Um, and I think, you know, how we think about time and who's educating parents or uh, educating these homeschool students has changed over time. So back to the kind of antiquated state regulations, a lot of states require that the education happens a certain number of days or weeks and even hours. And there are a few states that require that the education at home occurs between eight and three, you know, 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. People just don't do things like that anymore. None of us, I think, are on the same schedules that we used to be even 10 years ago. And so I think it's becoming more common for both parents to work. Maybe grandma would keep the student during the day and then the parents would educate the student at night when they're home. Parents take turns or on the weekends. And so the idea that education has to occur between eight and three or that one parent has to do it. Um, those things are all, I think, kind of resetting and evolving in a way, along with our society, as things begin to change post-pandemic. I know this may be a hard question to answer, but when families choose to do homeschooling, would you say that the predominant pattern is if they homeschool one, they homeschool them all? Or is it sort of an a la carte thing where, well, your your siblings are going to public school, but you really have a problem or we have an issue that we want to solve for homeschooling just for an individual child? Right. So yes, this is one of the stereotypes that if you homeschool, you homeschool all your kids. That is not the truth of what we see even in our data. Um, we can see that parents homeschool some students in some years and other schools in other years. Now, we can't see the actual inside the actual families, but older students aren't coming in at the same rate as the younger students. And so families are choosing to educate their different kids in different ways. And this happens even, even within the same family and even within the same child. They might homeschool a child when they're in elementary school, and then the child might go to a brick and mortar you know, private or public school setting as they become older, people switch in and out all the time and it's becoming more prevalent. All right. Well, Angela, it's time for grade it. Are you ready? Go. Field trips. Yeah. An A for field trips. You know, I think these kids need to get out and see the world and have some real experiences. I've obviously researched uh, field trips a little bit. And uh, we find positive benefits on all kinds of things for students that get out of the classroom. So if you take the costs and bend them aside, what would you say is the optimum number of field trips for, you know, upper elementary students? I mean, I wouldn't be sad if my kids got to go once a week, once a month at least, often, often. Some kids get zero field trips, particularly in older grades, it's a real shame. Yeah. Kids love them and they really learn from them. It's a great experience. College promise programs. College promise programs. Um, you know, A or a B. I, you know, I've studied college promise a little bit as well. College promise programs guarantee students who stay in district schools the opportunity to go to college. It depends. Sometimes you have to have been there for six or eight years or there's like a sliding scale of how much of the promise of scholarship you get, depending on how many years you attended the district. But basically, it tries to keep people in the uh, local public schools instead of leaving. Uh, you know, I worked in Arkansas, lots of flight out of the rural communities. And so some of these promise programs help with 
keeping families and obviously getting kids into college. I do think that the focus on sending everyone to college is shifting, but at least kids in that circumstance, kids would have the option. At least they could go if they want to. All right. The experience of being a non-traditional student. I think that's an A. I don't, I'm not exactly sure what a tradition, the experience of a traditional student is. You know, I think that probably varies as much as the experience of being a non-traditional student, but yeah. Khan Academy. Khan Academy, I think is great. I used it when I went back to school to study. I know homeschoolers use that for learning. My own kids have used it on occasion. I think that's great. More learning is better and free access is great as well. Online charter schools. So online charter schools, I think these virtual schools get a really bad rap. I think virtual education is bad when it's done poorly and it has a lot of promises if it's done well. There are a lot of schools that know what they're doing and do it well. It offers options to students that they may not have otherwise. So I'm for it. It's an A if it's done well. School choice in Arkansas, your backyard. Yeah, school choice in Arkansas. I think it gets an A. We'll see. We'll see how it's going. You know, it's very, very new and we're still trying to figure out um, how things are going to play out. There was a lot of hula baloo, you know, as it was going through, but that seems to have died down from my perspective from where I'm sitting. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. The quality of the average homeschool education. I know I'm asking you to get in trouble here, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I we don't know, we don't know, we just don't know. Um, and so I, you know, we have to leave it up to the parents to ass- ensure that their kids are getting a good education. Um, but from the data right now, we don't really know. All right, last one: the quality of social emotional learning offerings in 2024. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I think social emotional learning is important. Um, I worry that we have split our focus in public schools in so many different directions that it's just impossible for any, any school system to do all the things we're asking them to do, particularly if they may or may not be experts on social emotional learning or teaching, (laughs) conveying those skills to students. So um, I, I have concerns about, you know, asking so much of our education system. And so what grade would you give them? We insist on a grade. A grade, a a B. All right. Thanks for playing great. Let me follow up on one of those questions, which was the quality of the average homeschool education. What do we know about student outcomes? Uh, You talked about the CARTA survey and so forth, but do we, and this could very easily be another, we don't really know, but Have there been studies that have credibly looked at the outcomes of homeschool and what have they shown? There have been studies. It's the credible that's the problem. And so, you know, there's selection bias in homeschooling. We can't randomly assign people to homeschooling. And so trying to figure out even who to compare them to is really difficult. We do have surveys, so probably the best information we have comes from nationally representative surveys. However, there are problems with that as well, because we have a very small sample of participants in those surveys who are homeschoolers. And when you get into really small samples like that, you run into some real problems with bias there as well. And so, um, you know, again, 
We don't have any perfect information when it comes to homeschooling, but we have to rely on what we do have as best we can until we can figure out how to do something better. Um, so we are looking at at outcomes, you know, primarily later life outcomes, graduation, um, college going. Do you have a job? Are you divorced? These types of outcomes. And we can say a little bit about that from the survey information. We can say less about, um, you know, math proficiency and ELA, you know, proficiency. So let me preface this next question by saying there's a whole lot of discussion about how we should regulate private schools and public schools. But with homeschools, um, there is so much independence that a lot of people are with real concern, worried about how do we do quality control here? How do we make sure that students learn at a depth that they're supposed to learn or at a breadth that they're supposed to learn or balanced between those? Um, and it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but the homeschool community, there's a large portion of them that are kind of like, we are purposefully removing ourselves from the public schools. Don't tread on me. Don't tell us what to do. Um, and you said that even as the number of homeschoolers has been increasing, the regulation has gone down. Can you just describe the tug and pull of those kinds of discussions in the homeschool world? Yeah, so the regulation is the regulation is tricky and I try not to necessarily advocate for regulation one way or another and just more report on what there is out there. So it is there are some states where there really is no regulation of homeschooling um at all. Now they're in their statutes, they do spell out that Education has to be of a certain quality. It has to cover a certain number of topics, right? But there's no one actually ensuring that those things are happening. So if a parent chose not to do those things, they would be breaking the law. And then there are, you know, there is a whole system that takes care of that. Um, and so it is tricky, though, to consider um what I usually say is that there shouldn't be any regulation enforced on homeschoolers that is above what is being enforced on private schoolers or public schoolers. Georgia, again, is an interesting uh, example of this. In Georgia, homeschoolers are required to take a nationally norm reference test, okay, a standardized test, but it's compared to a national sample of students. However, the state test that all public school students take in Georgia is not nationally norm referenced. And so it's a higher bar for the homeschool students to clear than it is that they're holding their own public school students to. And so any, any kind of discrepancy like that, I would really advocate against. Like it, it should be a fair level playing field. Um, you know, now other people will say, Oh, we don't want testing. And, you know, there is some degree of those push back against those type of regulations within the homeschool community. Again, this kind of goes back to the public funding issue. Um, and that is, you know, something when public funding starts to cross the line into homeschooling, there are, there are requirements that students have to meet a certain level of um, educational rigor and they ask for students to be tested. And so, homeschool people will push back against that. But I think a lot of the newer homeschool, I call them the new brand, the new brand of homeschoolers that have really come in may be less um, concerned about having to take a test or, you know, cer meeting certain requirements in order to get public funding that helps them then 
take advantage of homeschooling or other choices. So, so there's a lot going on there as, as states kind of wrestle with updating some of these laws, figuring out, you know, what needs to be regulated, what doesn't. And then there's always the comparison, you know, do we hold public schools? Do we hold private schools to these same measures? And if, if we don't, we really shouldn't be holding homeschooling to a higher bar. I have a concern about the recent growth in homeschooling. And so I'm going to just sketch it out for you and then ask you to tell me whether I'm right or wrong or whether you share those concerns. Homeschooling pre-pandemic was a decision made when it wasn't an emergency, right? And we talked a lot about some headwinds, but the pandemic put a lot of people in a lot of emergency situations and we saw a spike in homeschooling. That doesn't mean all those decisions were bad, but it does mean they were made in a very different context. Um, some folks have gone back or the rates have gone down. But my concern is, well, we have some legitimate concerns, even if you're a homeschool supporter, about how well regulated and backstop some homeschooling is. And then with an emergency jump or an emergency related jump in homeschooling, I'm more concerned that a lot of parents engaged in these decisions on an emergency footing and so that the outcomes for students, particularly in the South growth, might be less than we would have expected previously. All that to say, are my concerns about the spike in homeschooling ones that you share? I mean, I don't think that I've necessarily thought of it in that context, but yes, I think that we, I think that we should all be concerned about all children learning and getting quality educations. Um, and, you know, if we can provide some sort of supports to families, particularly homeschool, micro school, you know, smaller learning environment families that help them along and support them as they attempt to do this thing, whether that is, you know, curriculum or access to resources. One thing, you know, that is was very surprising to me going through the hub work was that whether or not you can receive services, if you have a student with an IEP, SPED students, um, depends. And if you're a homeschooler with a SPED student, whether or not you can receive any services depends on what state you live in. And in some cases, even what district you live in or what school your child would have attended. And so it's huge variation. Um, so, you know, thinking about how we can support these families through, you know, access to special needs services, through, you mentioned earlier, access to local public schools. This is a trend where we see increased um, access for homeschool students to go to their local public school for free and participate in chess club or football or take chemistry. And so, you know, the more we're able to offer some of these options and thinking about it as carrots instead of sticks, um, where we can engage families in the community, engage families in our school institutions and kind of help support and ensure that everyone is getting a good education. I think the more of that, the better. Those kind of offerings can certainly help homeschoolers who are concerned about the social benefits that kids get from being around other kids. I mean, I, I don't think there's too many people that think that's generally unhealthy, although certainly there can be negative consequences there. Um, what do homeschoolers typically do? I mean, one thing is to engage your kids in a, in a team or so forth, but how do homeschoolers 
deal with the challenge of making sure that their kid engages with a lot of other folks, because that's something that schools just naturally do. They gather a bunch of kids in the same place, you know, every day. Right. You know, one thing about education is I think that we, education in general, tends to default to what we have always done. And everyone has gone through some form of formal education. You know, most most of the United States has done that. And so even parents who are homeschooling, I think we see them defaulting to um, co-ops, hybrid schools, micro schools, learning pods, where they are gathering multiple families, multiple members of the family, you know, the community together in these little school settings. And so it's important to not misunderstand that the total homeschool number isn't only parents schooling from home at their kitchen table. The homeschool number includes all of these, I call them homeschool adjacent models, right? That are micro schools. These micro schools, you know, used to, we thought of them as 12 or 15 kids in a, now the micro schools are hundreds of kids. So they're not so tiny anymore. Um, things are, things are growing, but those kids are all still generally classified as homeschoolers. So parents have come up with all different kinds of ways, um, co-ops, Facebook groups, they, you know, they share education responsibilities with other parents with expertise. There's a lot of, there's a lot of socialization and organization in little communities. It's not just one parent with their own students at the kitchen table. And this is a key distinction that I think a lot of people can miss because you, you you think, well, they just do it at the kitchen table. It is a kitchen table event. But a lot of these are schooling practices with one foot firmly in the home and another foot in lots of other things, sometimes a public school, oftentimes some sort of co-op or micro school. But you would also have some part of the foundation squarely at the home and controlled at the home. And that's really the defining characteristic as opposed to the child goes to school five days a week at their kitchen table. Correct. Yeah. No, I think that I think that that's true. And, you know, I mean, people have different views on the public school access that it may take resources away from public schools, that it may cause difficulties with, you know, legal descriptions and regulations from the homeschool side. But I think it's great to, you know, it, it helps with some of these concerns of isolationism or isolating kids, you know, for abuse. And it offers kids opportunities to engage with a larger community, to learn from others, to be in a more diverse setting. All of all of these things that we think are are probably good, but maybe not to do it at a full time basis. It seems like you can't get through a podcast anywhere without mentioning AI. So here I go. Um, we have lots of online platforms. Some of them are going to be AI assisted in a week or a month or so. Um, what kind of appeal do you think technological advances, especially for high school students, might have that might make homeschooling easier? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Uh, what's the appetite among homeschooling communities for those sorts of innovations? I mean, I think it just is going to depend on the homeschooler, just like it would in the regular, you know, in the average population. Some people are not interested in that. It, it's going to depend, too, and you know, as you pointed out, on the age of the child. I think that's going to make a difference whether or not we're willing to let AI get very involved in that. However, there are some really interesting opportunities for AI, for generative AI to help students that have interests in things that may have exceeded what their school has to offer them. 
to differentiate in ways that we can't currently differentiate in the traditional school setting, but also in homeschool setting where students can get more experiences, maybe even get some sort of credentialing, you know, through through different AI platforms. And I know people are definitely working on that, um, looking at how how that can be leveraged in all school situations, but for these small school homeschool situations as well. So Angela, you've done a lot of work with the Homeschool Hub and getting data together and looking backwards at what has happened. We'll definitely link to the Homeschool Hub in the in the show notes. But let me ask you to look forward for a little bit. To close us out, what do you think we'll see over the next 10 years? I mean, just what are your expectations? One could expect, well, we'll probably have more of a snap back. One could say, with the increase in ESAs, we should expect to see this growing. Uh, what do you expect? Yeah. I mean, I think homeschooling is definitely here to stay. Um, I think it's going to continue to grow. I think it's going to continue to diversify and that we're going to continue to see these new innovations. Um, we may not call it homeschooling in 10 years. You know, that may not be the catch-all term. I don't know. We're going to have to do something about like having some common terms and figuring out how we're going to define these different things, or we're just going to have to create some new catch-all, you know, alternative education bucket that we put all of these different groups into because they're continuing to innovate, continuing to come up with new ways to do things and different names to call themselves. I think the ESAs definitely, and, you know, the continued growth of public funds for private types of education is going to continue to grow and that we're going to see more and more of these types of innovations. Now, whether folks choose homeschooling or if we, you know, if they start to come up with other options, I don't know, but I I definitely think these kind of boutique models of schooling are going to become more and more popular. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus and special thanks to our guest, Angela Watson. We'll include a link to the Hopkins homeschool hub and some of Angela's other work in the show notes. Also, thanks to our producer, Ellie Lucas, who makes this podcast possible. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. As always, send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. 